So, uh, this is my last uh, talk on this retreat. And I'm going to call it a, a secular culture of awakening, which describes, or at least tries to describe, what kind of culture, what kind of practice might we be um, opening up by considering the Dharma in this way. Something I said at the very first talk, um, which seems like a long time ago now, was that um, for me meditation is in the in the larger frame of things a sensibility rather than reducible to a technique or proficiency in a particular technique of practice. I'm not suggesting that is is also not valid, but in the overall sense of how we seek to uh, engage with these values and ideas, it seems to me to lead more to a broader sensibility uh, towards ourselves, towards life in the world, to others. And such a sensibility is on the one hand I feel very much embodied and we spoke about this quite a lot at the beginning, how meditation um, starts very much by reconnecting to the fact of being in a body, or being a body. The breath, the sensations in the body, uh, the posture, that all of this is a coming back to the groundedness of our experience rather than spending so much time in a kind of liminal zone of memories, of fantasies, of plans, a kind of a, a, almost an alienation from our embodied experience. And I've always found it very striking that when the Buddha introduces meditation, he, he starts with the body, he starts with the breath. But this sensibility is not only embodied, it's also a sensibility that um, is receptive and open. Uh, this was, I feel, suggested strongly in Martin's instructions on listening. That in some ways, and I think this is particularly important perhaps in our modern Western go-getting culture, that rather than think of our relationship in terms of, of seeking something, of, of, of looking, uh, of somehow always um, trying to get our way in the world, that we consider reorienting our primary um, sense of being to one that is more akin to listening more akin to receptivity. Once again, a sensibility that is grounded on learning how to stop, learning how to be still, 
And it's not just stillness, it's also the kind of openness of awareness that is allowed, that is nurtured by stillness. And the third point that I mentioned in this first talk um, is that such a sensibility is one that connects us with a feeling of, of wonderment, um, of perplexity perhaps, of puzzlement. The more that we allow this embodied stillness to become uh, the source of our awareness, it also opens up a sense that the world is not as clear-cut and as um, self-evident as sometimes our, our language and our concepts and our beliefs tend to imply. And for very, you know, good reasons, we are brought up, we're educated to look at ourselves and the world in a particular way, but always with the sense that this will somehow aid us in our careers in our being able to get by, being able to survive in a way in the sort of uh, social economic environment that we live in. But the, the cost at which that comes is very often a increasing sense of life of the world as composed of readily discernible, recognizable, knowable facts. Um, in, the, in the language of Ian McKilchrist's book, it's very much a left hemisphere dominated view of the world. It's calculative, um, it's utilitarian. And the sensitivity or the sensibility of meditation, I feel, returns us to perhaps what might for some of us be a kind of childlike wonder, an amazement, an astonishment that we're here at all, that we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. These are not just routine instructions, but actually they are a call to attend to our experience in such a way that um, the sheer uh, surprise and fascination that sometimes may be also a certain kind of, 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 of terror, almost, in the face of uh, the sheer excess of experience. And we saw that yesterday when we were looking at uh, the Buddha's critique of language, um, of is and is not, same and different, these are very much categories that allow us to fix the world in place, that allow us to conceive of ourselves as a kind of separate um, monad uh, entity. And we lose touch, therefore, with the, the complexity, the ambiguity, the connectivity of life and experience, which when we do begin to return to, brings up, I feel, a sense of puzzlement, of wonder, a kind of mind-stopping feeling of, of awe, perhaps. 
And the meditation Martine introduced this morning, that of asking this question, what is this, is quite specifically aimed at uh, cultivating and refining this sense of wonderment or perplexity. So that we don't immediately grasp at a particular idea or a particular object or a particular person and feel as though in some reductive sense we know what it is. We allow ourselves to come back to the body, to be open, listen from a still space in which we can ask, well what is this? What is this? Without the expectation of getting the right answer which is again our habit, but to allow ourselves to embrace and to accept and to in a way celebrate the capacity we have for for wonder. In the early in the first talk I also described this as something like the everyday uh, sublime. And to connect that with what we've been talking of in the last uh, couple of lectures, the everyday sublime seems to be how our ordinary life appears when seen through the lens or the lenses of these four tasks. In other words, fully knowing or embracing dukkha, the totality of our experience, letting go of our habitual reactive graspings and fears and hates that rise up almost in, instinctively on an encounter with the world. Experiencing moments in which we are free from such reactivity and then from that still space, responding through thoughts or words or deeds, how we live in the world with others. All of that, I think, is a framework for coming to terms with the sublimity of life and the world. I think it's also worth bearing in mind how in the fourth task, which is the task of creating and cultivating the path, the fourth noble truth, um, again suggests a rather more caring and nurturing relationship to our lives, um, which I think is implicit in the very word bhavana. The word I've translated as cultivate, or create and cultivate, in Pali and Sanskrit is bhavana. And bhavana often is translated as development or meditation sometimes. But it actually has its roots in the, in the word bhava, which means being or existence. And bhavana means to bring something into being. So this is a practice that's not just about cultivating qualities of meditation, although that's obviously part of it. But it's interesting that the Buddha considers bhavana to be that which is applied to every aspect of the Eightfold Path. 
the path itself, in fact, is to be brought into being, is to be cultivated, is to be opened up. A path, of course, being an empty space, a space in which there is no impediment or hindrance. That's what a path is. And so part of the practice is that of opening up this unimpeded space within our own lives. And if we talk of a, a culture that's based on these values, it's not just a personal endeavor, but also it's an endeavor to open up this kind of spaciousness within our community, within our relationships, within perhaps in the wider society. To try and envision a way of being together in this world that's not determined by our desires and our fears and our ambitions, but is determined more by uh, an open, caring, nurturing relationship with life itself. And in this way, we can perhaps think of our, our practice as more akin to um, a, the practice of art than the gaining of proficiency in certain techniques. Um, the very term bhavana, to bring into being, of course, is closely connected to the idea of... Um, of creation, of creativity. If you bring something into being, you create it. You bring into being something that previously wasn't there. And we do this individually, we do this communally, we acknowledge the values that we most deeply cherish and we seek to realize them in the world. Not just in our own minds, although that obviously is probably where it begins. But how can we practice, say, for example, uh, right speech or action? All of this is inevitably embedded in our relationships with others and with the world. So the practice of the path has in its very core um, a challenge to engage with the world, engage with life. The fact that Buddhism has recently had to introduce notions like engaged Buddhism suggests to me a kind of failure of the tradition to acknowledge the, the, the holistic origins of its own teachings. That practice is not just about meditation. That my practice can just as well be the way I communicate, the way I make a living, the, may I, the way I... Uh, embody my presence in the world through my acts. And so this is very much a, a relationship of care rather than one of, of utility and control. Now one of the criticisms that um, one gets in introducing a notion like secular and then defining secular as in terms of the Latin seculum, which means this age or this time, 
is that such an approach to the Dharma is only concerned with our life on this earth for a period of 50 or 60 years. It's just about somehow improving our lot here and now. But that, I think, is a very, um, a very narrow reading of what a secular vision might be. It's just as much about a concern with articulating and realizing a Buddhist culture that is informed by the world view of this age, of this time. And this leads us into conflict with elements of the world view of ancient India, particularly, because Buddhism in all traditions, is saturated with cosmological assumptions that come from ancient India. And of course, one of the most, one one of the real sort of touch points or, or flash points in this um, uh, debate between a secular as opposed to a more traditional approach uh, gets focused around the doctrines of reincarnation or rebirth and karma as a kind of cosmogonic theory. In other words, our actions or the actions of others are what produce the kind of world we're in now, the quality of our life. And it's a kind of natural law that's tied into our own uh, ongoing existence from life to life, driven by our different um, actions, our moral deeds. What we often forget is that these doctrines about karma and reincarnation are not just metaphysical ideas that we can either choose to accept or reject, or as many would argue, are either intrinsic or extrinsic to the Buddhist teaching. I feel that what we have to notice is that, you know, what purpose did those doctrines serve in earlier times. I think they provided people with a sense of a much bigger picture within which their short lives, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, are embedded. In other words, the idea that this life is one that's somehow informed in a, in a meaningful way by what has gone on in a almost infinitely distant past and how our present lives will have an impact upon what will follow in a potentially infinite future. Uh, That was provided by the doctrine of karma and rebirth and it was very important. It, It provided something that really helped people make sense of their world. When an example that I find helpful here is if, if in let's say 16th century Japan or Tibet a couple produced a child with severe learning difficulties or spina bifida or Down syndrome this would be something quite incomprehensible and they would seek some kind of explanation for why this has happened And in the karma rebirth model, you are provided with a quite rational explanation that the suffering of the child 
and by implication your own sense of, 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 of despair or whatever it might be, uh, is the result of actions committed in previous lifetimes. It's somehow the consequence of what's gone before. And this enables you to somehow accept and understand what otherwise appears unacceptable and incomprehensible and unfair and unjust. It enables you to live with that situation. It gives you a framework for then dealing with it in hopefully a wise and a compassionate way. Now, Christian parents of, let's say, a similar period in 16th century Europe, let's say, if a similar thing had happened to them, they had a child with similar uh, difficulties, then they too would have sought an explanation. And the explanation would have been something along the lines of, we don't understand this, but it must be the will of God. Now, that has as much explanatory power as it must be the result of their actions in a previous life. It's the same kind of discourse. It's not something you can prove or disprove, but it provides an explanation for something that is otherwise inexplicable. And I feel that that was very much the social function of these doctrines. They're not just metaphysical ideas that we can play around with. They actually have a very real impact on people's lives in the real world. The trouble is not that um, you know these concepts are somehow incorrect. It's more a problem that they just don't work terribly well for many people in the kind of world that we live in today. Because nowadays our sense of um, the past and the future is far more informed by um, our scientific understanding of how the universe began, of how this planet evolved, of how life emerged on this planet through um, natural selection. We understand diseases and you know deformities at birth as having to do with with genetics having to do with other things that we can more and more get a handle on and at the same time we have a sense of a future that is very much a future that um, will unfold on this earth on in this world in well we don't know how much longer it will go on for but potentially for centuries, eons, we don't know. And so that framework for understanding the role of our life of 60, 70, 80 years is now framed by a very different sense of a very long past and a potentially very long future. So my sense is that that model um, provides us with what in earlier times would have been provided by the theories of reincarnation and so forth and so on. And it seems to me that that is quite an adequate way of coming to terms with our role, our life, 
in the larger picture of life in the broader sense. So a secular approach is not at all uh, ignoring the past or the future, um, but it's coming to, um, it's finding a, a way of um, understanding the past through history, through science and so on, that provides us with the kind of explanations that otherwise would have been provided by theories of God and uh, karma and so on. In fact, in many ways, I find that the um, narratives of history, the narratives of science, afford us very um, vivid and I find very beautiful illustrations of the principle of conditioned arising. Uh, it seems that, in some ways, conditioned arising, dependent origination, is um, is more thoroughly explicated through um, our understanding of natural processes than it is through the theories that we find in the Buddhist texts, which, of course, are focused primarily on our own first-person experience, but nonetheless conditioned arising seems to me to be what we learn when we study history or evolution. And that I feel is, going back to what we said at the beginning, uh, the principle on which the whole of the Buddhist teaching ultimately rests. So it doesn't really matter whether we talk of karma or whether we talk of evolution. We're still talking about the principle of conditionality. And that, I feel, is what really matters. I think we can also see this in um, uh, this recovery of some of the earlier passages of the suttas. If we take, for example, the, the very famous doctrine of the twelve links of dependent origination, which is certainly the orthodox understanding, it seems to me quite clear that the beginning and the end of that model, it starts with ignorance and sankara, which means like conditioned activities, karma. And then it concludes with birth, sickness, aging, death. But that 12-fold, that 12-link model is very much um, an attempt to give us an overall explanation of how life comes to be on earth. It's a, it's a metaphysical theory. But if we trace back in the canon um, the, what appear to be the earliest versions of that, of what became the 12 link model, we find um, in the Sutta Nipata um, a model that's not so quite as, as presented, you know, step one, step two, step three, quite as simply as that, but nonetheless is clearly dealing with the same idea, and it doesn't include birth, sickness, aging, death at the end, and it doesn't include ignorance and karma at the beginning. In fact, the whole um, uh, understanding of dependent origination in this text, it only occurs once in the Sutta Nipata starts when the Buddha asks himself rhetorically, 
Where do quarrels, disputes, lamentations and grief, together with avarice, pride, arrogance, slander, where do these come from? Whence do these arise? So in other words, it's an analysis not of how we came to be born in this world, which the 12-link model provides, but it's an analysis of human conflict. Quarrels, disputes, lamentations, grief, avarice, pride, arrogance, etc. In other words, it is an investigation into the actual experience we're having now and why does that keep arising as conflict. I wonder sometimes if we couldn't even translate dukkha as conflict. Embrace conflict. And it has the double advantage also of making more sense of the idea that craving gives rise to dukkha, which I always find difficult, craving gives rise to suffering. But I can understand it as craving gives rise to conflict. And I wonder if we couldn't rethink dukkha in terms of conflict. Conflict between what I want and how the world is. In other words, sickness and ageing. Um, are simply what happens to us in life which unnecessarily generate conflict. In other words, I don't want to be sick, I don't want to get old, thereby putting me into conflict with life as it is. So part of this approach that I've been exploring um, is one where by going back to some of these earliest sources we get glimpses of a secular approach to the practice of the Dhamma uh, so which is I find rather reassuring uh, because it suggests that the Pali Canon is open to a variety of readings I sometimes think it's a bit like if you're looking at a um, uh, let's say a, 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 a landscape, a view and you're looking at it through the lens of a camera um, which has a very um, wide aperture in other words you get a very narrow depth of field you've seen this in the movies where you, you, the camera focuses in and you see initially in clear focus a few you know, waving pieces of grass and that's all you see apart from blur and then as the focal, focal range shifts, a person comes into view, a child playing in the field. And with the next turn of the lens, you see the backdrop of a house, and everything else becomes blurred. And I think, in a way, the, the richness of the, of the Dharma is a bit like that, that depending on where we place the focal range, we see something else and everything else blurs and what I've been doing in my research into the text is as it were trying to sort of find the focal range where the secular elements of the Dharma become suddenly into sharp focus leaving everything else slightly blurred it's not, a, it's not therefore to say that this is the right view and that's the wrong view 
it's actually, I think, pointing to how somehow uh, the Buddha had a sufficiently holistic understanding of life to allow different modalities of understanding at different times in history. And that to me is very much the, 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 uh, the richness of the tradition. And I think it also helps explain how Buddhism, unlike, say, uh, Jainism, was able to speak to people outside the Indian context, in China, in Japan, and now in the West. Or perhaps because it has a plurality of coherent narratives and value systems and practices embedded within it, implicitly that then can become unfolded once we start to focus our gaze on the teachings from this perspective. Now this all sounds, you know, very nice, liberal, kind of open-minded sort of way of looking at things, but why therefore does one get into such trouble when you start um, suggesting these ideas? Why do why why does one often get or I often get I'm going to be frank uh, such negative reactions um, from traditional Buddhists as though somehow um, you know what by doing this you're somehow you know destroying the Dharma you're somehow betraying the message of the Buddha you're just picking and choosing and putting your own choices onto the uh, text and song and it's at this point I think we have to acknowledge um, again we see it clearly in the history not only of Buddhism but pretty much all religions and probably all political and philosophical movements as well is that over time um, orthodoxies crystallize and elite power groups in the case of Buddhism, this usually means professional clergy, regard themselves as the protectors and the upholders of that orthodoxy. Now, orthodoxy um, simply means a kind of agreed understanding of um, what the Pali Canon, let's say, or some other canonical body of texts really means. So in the Theravada tradition of Buddhism, you have Buddha Gosha, who arrives at a very coherent orthodox. In other words, a comprehensive explanation of the Dharma that's well-rooted in the canonical materials and is internally uh, coherent. Make, makes sense. And it also, crucially, makes sense for people at that time in those places in the history of Buddhism. Then we come to Tibet and we have someone like Tsongkhapa who does exactly the same thing, except in 14th century Tibet, basing himself on Mahayana and Vajrayana sources and arrives at another orthodoxy, another internally consistent and coherent interpretation of the whole body of material. Uh, this is unavoidable. The consequences, though, are that that then tends to slip, perhaps imperceptibly and unintentionally, into a rather fixed view of things. 
And those who, as it were, uphold that fixed view of things tend to assume authority and power over everyone else. And so, as a consequence, this tends to open up an increasing distance between the ordinary practitioner who's just trying to figure out how to meditate and understand what the Four Noble Truths mean and the professional body of priests or lamas or roshis or whatever who have got all the answers. And the practice in that sense becomes one of conforming one's own understanding to that of those who are in authority. Now, those in authority might be very wise and compassionate people. That's not uh, the point I'm trying to, to, to make. But there does seem to be um, observable um, an increasing distance that opens up so that enlightenment or awakening progressively get to be more and more out of reach. And so you have in, in many traditions a sense of stream entry, for example, or arhanship, or the, the Arya Bodhisattva, or the Buddha, are described in terms that, for many of us, would appear almost humanly unattainable. The idea of you know, being omniscient, the idea of not having any concepts in one's mind anymore, the idea of being purely wise and loving, non-stop, these are wonderful ideals, but are they actually any longer within realistic human reach? Now, um, this was, uh, as some of you might already be noticing, this is very much the critique of religion that we find first put forward by the German philosopher Ludwig Feuerbach uh, in the 1840s. He wrote a book called Das Wesen des Christentums, uh, The Essence of Christianity, which described, um, obviously in terms of the Christian churches, exactly this process of what he then called uh, Entfremdung, alienation. That religion, when it is an orthodoxy controlled by an elite, and that elite is very often then allied to a secular power, such as a king or some other kind of um, warlord or something, that this, um, in a way, alienates the ordinary person from their deepest inner truths and values. So wisdom and compassion and power are the three values that Feuerbach isolates. He says get transferred or projected entirely onto the upholders of the tradition, the popes, the priests, or whatever. And, we, and the ordinary person consequently feels disempowered and somehow um, inadequate, somehow almost worthless in a way. And that can serve as a motivation to develop these qualities. But when these qualities are raised so high onto this pedestal, in a way, it becomes an almost impossible or overly demanding task that, conveniently though, can be accomplished after you're dead. 
in your next lifetimes. Then you've got lots of chances and you get reborn as a man and as a monk and all this stuff. Um, but what happens historically, and we can see this now in many, many instances, is if that tension becomes too great, if the conflict between the ideals of the tradition and the ordinary person's experience is too, if that gulf is too vast, then there's a danger that the whole thing will collapse. And I think good examples of this in China are the emergence of Chan, or Zen, which started out in about the 6th century as a rebellion against a highly cerebral, academic, scholarly kind of Buddhist establishment and sought to return to the primary act of just sitting. And what's refreshing in the early Zen records is this very earthy language, this very, this recovery of idiom, of poetry, of a sense of the value of a wooden bowl, or something like that. Now, of course, Zen, too, can now be criticized for having succumbed to the very thing it rebelled against. It, too, has become a very powerful institution controlled by you know, a particular elite. Uh, we see the same thing also in Japan in the 13th century with the figures of Honen and Shinran, who were priests who decided to disrobe and go and live and work with the people living in the slums and they founded the Pure Land School of Buddhism, which is still a very powerful movement in, in East Asia today. Or we find the, um, in India, we find the, um, the emergence of the first Vajrayana, the first Tantric masters like Tilopa, Naropa and so on. Again, breaking with the monastic establishment and returning to ordinary life. So in some ways I feel that what we're talking about, and again this is to some degree hypothetical, I don't know if it's really true or not, is that the, um, is the gap that we often encounter when we approach Buddhist practice between what I actually feel in myself here and now, my own wisdom, my own sensitivity to life, um, is presented as being so far removed from what the Buddha or the great masters of the past have realized that once again I feel a kind of disempowerment, a kind of alienation. And therefore, in some respects, we may be at a moment when a similar kind of, uh, of disruption might be in the offing. And I think there are many signs of this. Uh, the Vipassana movement as a whole, in a way. Um, again, it's lay-based, as a, by and large. Um, it strips away a lot of the complicated Buddhist theology and returns to the simple practice of watching the breath and being mindful. In a sense, this is a recovery of something that's very much rooted in the early tradition, yet without a lot of the baggage, without a lot of the power structures, without a lot of the metaphysics that seems to go hand in hand with Orthodox Buddhism.
Now, all of this, of course, ties into our notion of what it means to be part of a community, or in Buddhist jargon, a sangha. Sangha just means community. So, if we are to explore a secular approach to the Dharma, we also need to rethink what we mean by Sangha. We saw yesterday that the, the stream entrant is the one who achieves avecha pasado, um, lucid trust or lucid confidence in awakening, in the Dhamma and in the Sangha. Now, when the Buddha defines what he means by Sangha in that instance, uh, he doesn't say the community of bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, the community of monks and nuns. But he says, and again, this is technical jargon, he says the eight kinds of individuals. Uh, now, without going into detail, that refers to anyone who has entered the stream of the path and finally who has become an arahant saint, a liberated saint. So the criterion for being a member of the Sangha has nothing to do with vows you might have taken or a lifestyle you might have adopted, but it has to do with the extent to which you have turned your life around to embrace these core values. And it's very common today um, that we'll hear people say, oh, now uh, it's, it's the full... Wonderful retreat huts on the perimeter of the property. And I inquired as to, you know, whether one could use these huts. And he said, no, they're only for the Sangha. Now, what was meant, of course, was for the people in robes who have taken vows. But I find that the usage of the word Sangha in that way is very exclusive. And it actually conflicts quite explicitly with how the notion of Sangha was understood in the earliest canonical materials where the Buddha speaks of it as containing monks and nuns, lay men and lay women, the fourfold Sangha. And what unites them is not their lifestyle, but their degree of commitment and engagement in the flourishing and the realizing of the path. So, the consequences of thinking of stream entry as commitment, of thinking of stream entry as coming, making the path into one's own, as, as Sariputta says, the, the stream entrant is one for whom the eightfold path has become their own. And then we get expressions in other passages where making the path one's own means to become aparapachaya, independent of others in the Buddha's teaching. In other words, 
the streamantrant has achieved a degree of autonomy in his or her practice. Now this is an idea that's largely forgotten, I feel, um, because power lies so often implicitly or explicitly in the body of professional clerics. So by recovering this earlier, I, these earlier ideas of stream entry, of the path, of the sangha, I feel that that actually can be deeply empowering, uh, in which we arrive at a far more um, inclusive idea of community rather than one that's segregated between the lay people and the professional elite. So in other words, a living community, which is how I would like to think of Sangha, is one that supports the individuation of each of its members. So I don't see any contradiction between uh, um, evolving as an autonomous agent in your own way along the process of the path and having a deep embeddedness in a set of relationships that supports that, which we call Sangha. So in other words, as a Sangha, we support each other in becoming more individuated, more capable of realizing our own potentials, of flourishing according to the broad values of the path, which is, the, which is quite different from conceiving of the Sangha as a kind of a collective, in a sort of, in a sort of communist kind of sense, where membership is defined by adherence to a set of orthodox doctrines. And, and uh, I mean, part of the, you know, the difficulty I've undergone in my progress, or maybe the opposite, through Buddhism, um, is, um, you know, finding my, spending some years in particularly a Tibetan Buddhist tradition. Uh, with people I felt, you know, were really good friends, um, had a great deal in common with, but as soon as I did something outside the box... Basically, you know, I was no longer somehow included in anything. Um, all of those friendships just evaporated. Not all of them, but many of them. Um, in other words, I realized that to be accepted in that particular tradition meant that one agreed to particular views and doctrines. And if you failed to agree to such views, then you are excluded. And we see this in all religions. I mean, it's hardly news that this is what goes on. And so we have heresy, apostasy, all of these awful sounding things. Though the word heresy, uh, of course, comes from the Greek uh, word which means to choose. The heretic is the person who chooses to think differently. Often we think of the heretic as just, just an, another word for the bad guy. <laughs> that may be true too, of course. <laughs> but, um, uh, and I suspect many of us who come on you know, retreats uh, here 
may not feel entirely comfortable in some of these organizations that require um, adherence to particular bodies of doctrine which really cannot be questioned. To me that's not a sangha, that's a collective. Uh, a sangha is one in which uh, the, you know, the, the autonomy and the value of the individual practitioner is honored and valued. And that is the core thing. It's the realization of value, not the um, uh, agreement to certain doctrinal norms. So this ties, I think, very well into the Buddha's understanding of the nature of the person. And again, we, we saw yesterday how um, the, the, the Buddha is not saying there is no self. If there were no self, there'd be no community either. You can't have a community of non-persons. <laughs> it would be incredibly dull for a start. But unfortunately, again, I mean, that idea is so widespread uh, that um, we kind of take it as being what Buddhism is somehow about. But I think it's more helpful to think of each individual person or practitioner or community too, in, in a sense, as a work in progress, uh, as an unfinished product. Now that accords, I think, very, very well with the idea of impermanence, with the idea of unsatisfactoriness, unfinishedness, incompleteness, and the idea of a path an eightfold path that includes all of our human uh, capacities as a means whereby to work on that project of the person. I'm going to read a couple of passages. I'm sure some of you are familiar with them. One has to do with, well, they both have to do with the, with the nature of self. Uh, the first passage is a dialogue between Vachagota, who was a, a wandering mendicant. He wasn't a Buddhist. And he often is depicted in the canon as asking the Buddha difficult questions. So that's, he's quite a useful sort of gadfly in that sense. So he comes up to the Buddha one day and he says, How is it, Mr. Gautama? Is there a self? And the teacher remains silent. Oh, then how is it, Mr. Gautama, is there no self? Well, actually, that's a mistranslation. Is there not a self? Is there not a self? And the teacher again remained silent. So Vachagota got up from his seat and went away. The Buddha then turned to Ananda and said, If I had answered, there is a self, then I would have been siding with those who are eternalists. But if I'd answered there is not a self, then I would have been siding with those who are nihilists. Now this is very much the same idea that we found yesterday with the passage about uh, avoiding the duality of is and is not. In other words, the person, the self, I. And again, remember this is not an idea. I refers to me, or you, 
the, the person cannot be adequately understood as either something that is or as something that is not. And the whole project is not to arrive at some sort of philosophical understanding of the status of the individual person, but rather to recognize that any language that seeks either to say, well, this is what you really are, or the language that says, well, ultimately you don't even exist, there is no self, both of those are extreme positions. Both of those are anta. They're limiting conditions. They actually cut us off from being open to what we are as, in Martin's words, a flow of conditions. We're a process, like life itself. We're arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. Nothing is standing still. There's no essential core, and yet that doesn't mean it's just meaningless chaos. It's coherent, it's lawful, um, in many, many ways, both in terms of our biology, our, our psychology, our spiritual aspirations. But perhaps the passage that most explicitly um, affirms the idea of oneself as an unfinished project or a work in progress is a verse in the Dhammapada, verse 80, which I often cite, so you've probably heard it before, which says, just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, Atanam Dhammati Pandita, the wise person, the Pandita, Dhammati, tames, literally, it's actually a cognate of the English word, tame, Dhammati, tames, Atanam, the self. And the Buddha's using here the word atta in its accusative form, atanang, um, as the direct object of the verb, to tame. And then compares that to the way a farmer irrigates a field, the way an arrowsmith fashions an arrow, the way a carpenter or a sculptor shapes a piece of wood. So in other words... We're not doing this practice in order to come to some shattering revelation that there is no me, but rather, as we pursue this path, we're involved in a caring, um, nurturing process that is concerned with one's own evolution, development, growth, whatever word you use, awakening, I think would be a good Buddhist equivalent there, that we are projects of awakening in process. And it's well worthwhile, I feel, to meditate a bit on the metaphors, irrigating a field, making an arrow, shaping a piece of wood. All of these involve an engagement with something other than one, oneself, as it were. 
the, the body, the feelings, perceptions, inclinations, consciousness might be thought of as like a field or like the bits of an arrow or like an uncarved block of wood. And the practice is very much to work with those materials in such a way that we transform them, that we enable that field to become fertile, that allows plants and so forth to grow and to bear fruit, that we put together the components of an arrow, as it were, in order that our life too can become more single-minded, focused, directed towards the realization of its goals, like an arrow being fired to its target. Or we can think of our practice as like refining and shaping and working and maybe molding, whatever images come to mind, or again, like the wood turner in the Satipatthana Sutta, the wood turner acutely aware of the effects of the lathe on the piece of wood. That in a way that's what our practice of embracing our experience, of letting go of those reactive impulses that in a way turn us away from that work. Being able to do this focused work from a still centered place within ourselves. And that then is what leads to a flourishing, well-irrigated field, beautifully designed arrow, lovely piece of sculpture or something. And that, I feel, is very much um, a, a metaphor that transcends this dichotomy between self and no-self. It's process again. And that this can be something undertaken by lay people just as well as professionals um, is quite explicit in another passage which I'll conclude on from Marjima 73 where the Buddha says there are not only 100 or 500 but far more men and women lay followers clothed in white enjoying sensual pleasures who carry out my instruction, respond to my advice, have gone beyond doubt, become free from perplexity, gained intrepidity, courage, which came up yesterday, and become aparapataya, become independent of others in the teaching. Okay, we'll stop there. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.